This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Dear Mama, did you see it? Last night, we went from talking about the bulls to getting in the ring with them. We showed our first picture at the Everbeats Drive-In. You always told me I would be successful no matter what I did. When the world threw me hurdles, you put me on your shoulders. They don't know how hard it was to get here, but you know it all. You always beat yourself up for the mistakes you made, but to be honest, I wish you were here to make all those mistakes again. They ask me who I am, why I'm doing this and where I'm going. Let's tell them everything. Let's tell them about the offspring of parents on dope. Let's tell them about being born deaf in one ear. Let's tell them about walking to school in the rain, trash bags like ponchos to a speech pathologist because nobody understands what the hell I'm saying. Hey listeners, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This series is committed to giving full voice to innovative, creative, and imaginative educators and education leaders across the Hawaiian Islands. You can find them on Kauai, Maui, Molokai, Lanai, Oahu, and Hawaii Island. Our goal is a thousand points of light. And as we approach 28,000 downloads to date, the wind is fully in our sails and we are firmly fixed on the North Star that is student-driven real-world learning. Speaking of a thousand points of light, my guest today is Wes Adkins, a math teacher at James Campbell High School in Eva Beach, the largest school in all of Hawaii. He proudly works in an inclusion classroom, promotes self-paced learning environments, and implements project-based learning assessments. Nipsey Hustle and Vector90 inspired him to work in STEM education and teach students the skills for locally-minded entrepreneurship. A first-generation college graduate and a film buff all his life, Wes recently won a $25,000 Education Innovation Teacher Challenge grant for his proposal to have his students create the Eva Beach Drive-In Movie Theater. The award was given by Farmers Insurance Hawaii and the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation. Wes sees launching a drive-in cinema as a great way to harness his students' varied interests and help them develop diverse skills, from engineering the movie screen to curating and creating films and developing business plans, computer apps, even recipes for the snack bar. The possibilities are limitless, Wes notes, I'm a firm believer that if you can just find something that you love, you can learn about the rest of the world through that thing that you love. Wes has an undergraduate degree in film and digital media production from the University of California at Santa Cruz and a master's in culturally responsive education from Ashford University in Clinton, Iowa. And now, here's my conversation with the one and only Wes Adkins. Wes, welcome to the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks, Josh. So Wes, your resume begins with this stated objective, and I quote, seeking a position where talents and knowledge shall be utilized, personal and professional growth resides, and sedulous minds are welcomed. And I was like, what? Sedulous? <laughs> so I, I literally had never heard of that word before. So I went down the rabbit hole and explored a bunch of definitions and synonyms of sedulous, which means, and I quote, diligent in application or attention, persevering, tireless, assiduous, persistently or carefully maintained. So Wes, why do you want to work at places where sedulous minds are welcomed? Like. Why is this so high on your value meter to be welcomed into a community as a sedulous mind? When I hear the word sedulous, I think of an opportunity, especially when we're talking about work and, and career-wise, 
uh, a sedulous environment or an environment inviting sedulous minds is, is a place where I can pour myself into, a place where I can make mistakes, but with my diligence and, and, and my drive, I can really embody that growth uh, mindset. And I think that's what I was trying to highlight when I made that objective. You know, I want to have somewhere I can work and feel welcomed, feel like my strengths are really being pulled out and being valued, but also a place where I can grow and and just learn. Mm -hmm. And I was particularly interested in the definition um, tireless. And it sounds like you're somebody, as we get to know you here, who works tirelessly. Is that a fair statement? I would say that's a fair statement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I get my mind to something, I, I really, really go down that rabbit hole. And and like, what's a great example, just as people get to know you here, of something that you just feel like you're going to keep working and working and working on until you, you got the thing wired? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is even just me teaching math. Mm. I, I always have to tell my students, I didn't go to college to study math. I didn't study math in college. I didn't get a graduate degree in, in mathematics or anything like that. I just really, really enjoyed math in high school. Mm. So when I had to pick a subject to teach, I wanted it to be math. And then, you know, years later, here I am teaching math my first year, and I am lost. Mm. I don't know what Sokotoa means. I cannot tell you how to, <laughs> I cannot tell you what a parabola looks like or any of this stuff. And it's like I have to relearn all of this. And I'm just very honest with my students at that time. And I tell them, hey, we're going to learn this together. Mm. And it's going to be an experience. You know, Wes, it's so interesting. In my my first stint as a, as a teacher um, here in Honolulu, I remember during those four years, there was a social studies teacher, really a history teacher. Um, he was actually the chair of the history department who mm -hmm. um, announced that he was the next year going to teach math. He was switching. And the community blew up. They were just like, it, it was as if it was the, you know, the Hadleys and the McCoys. They were all sort of lined up on either sides, you know, saying, you can't do this. You can't switch from history to math. You know, it was crazy. Well, you know, my background was in filmmaking. And yeah. I can tell you now that filmmaking and math go hand in hand. It, it takes critical thinking skills. You know, it takes being able to see that A equals B and B equals C. Mm. So A equals C, you know, and I think that everything I did in, in film in college and in my career completely applies to teaching mathematics. Mm. It's kind of pointing in that direction, although yeah, you might, I would say so. might not have known it at the time. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so Wes, way back when I asked you to provide, provide me with biographic materials, um, you gave me a list of books that were influential in your life. And one of those books is a, quote, classic of activist scholarship by the remarkable Harry Edwards, and it's titled The Revolt of the Black Athlete. One review described Edwards' book as, quote, the still essential study of the conflicts at the interface of sport, race, and society, end quote. So why did this book make your list, Wes? And, and what are your thoughts? And I know this is a big question, but what are your thoughts about what's happening in the country right now? Well, I think this book really made my list because it left a, a lasting impact on me. I played football in high school. I'm a, I'm a football buff. I love football. Mm. And I think we have this stereotype of athletes being dumb jocks and things like that, not being able to really follow higher order thinking. And, you know, this was a book that really challenged all that and really got you to understand, you know, how, how sports and how athletics fit into our society, not just uh, for entertainment purposes, but, you know, sociologically. And what's going on now in the country, you know, with athletes using their platforms to speak up more about social justice issues, you know, I champion this. I think this is a great thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we should have more Ali's in our time and in our history. Mm -hmm. Are you finding at your school, James Campbell High School in Eva Beach here on Oahu, are you, are you finding that this thinking that you have and has, you know, has been part of your evolution as a, as a person, as a thinker, is actually, you know, kind of taking hold in the culture, in the high school? Are kids thinking about this? Are they thinking deeply about this? Are they starting to understand the ways that they, even as athletes, may have a platform to, to say things and to act on things? Well, I sure hope so. Um, that's the goal. And I'm very honest with my students, very transparent. And I do that not to, to be provocative with them and, and shake them up a little bit, 
but to, to model what it looks like to be a critical thinker and to really analyze the world around you. And quite often I'm surprised by my students, or I shouldn't say I'm surprised, but I'm definitely impressed by my mm -hmm. students mm -hmm. and, and the way they're able to analyze the world around them. Mm. That's awesome. I can, I can just think that, you know, as we as educators spend a lot of time about how education is being reimagined, even just the, the fact that athletics is being reimagined at the same time, since athletics is very much a part of the high school experience for a lot of kids. It's not just football, right? It's, it's all different kinds of sports where you have a platform to raise issues that you care about. You know, what's really interesting is I teach PE during summer school as well. Mm. And uh, it, it was a quite, it was quite an interesting thing to go from teaching mathematics to going to teach PE, but it was, it was a wonderful opportunity to get the students to understand, you know, a strong body makes a strong mind mm. and vice versa. A strong mind should make up a strong body. And, you know, I, I hope that when we start getting our, the endorphins pumping that, you know, our brain is ready to start absorbing more knowledge. Yeah. That's an interesting idea that, that physical education teachers out there might consider a small step, which would be, you know, opening the doors to some sort of discussion-based learning within physical education because of the the marriage of the mind and the body. That that's an interesting thought. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. So, Wes, in a Honolulu Star Advertiser article about a special cash award you won, which we'll get into later, um, the first paragraph states. Quote, Campbell High School's Wesley Adkins is no ordinary math teacher, churning out formulas and problem sets. He sees the big picture, and he wants his students to do the same. So, of course, this is a two-part question, Wes. Like, clearly, the journalist, Susan Asoyan, you know, I think is spot on that you see the big picture. So what factors in your life's journey most contributed to this ability to see the big picture? Yeah, there's there's the micro people and there's the macro people, right? And and I think for me, what made me more of the big thinker, the big picture guy, is being um, attracted to details. And the more I got attracted to details, like the mosaics of life, um, you start to learn how these small things are puzzle pieces to a larger picture. So you just get obsessed with the larger picture. Um, it's probably also all the IMAX films I watched in seventy in seventy. Uh, uh, was that 70 frames or yeah millimeters <laughs> yeah right um yeah it was that um i would also say that i've always been inquisitive in life i've always been inquisitive and in trying to find connections um between subjects you know inter interdisciplinary studies really is what attracted me in my life mm. um trying to see how, you know i was obsessed with cameras i was obsessed with filmmaking and then through that obsession I started to really get into, um, you know, aspect ratios and I got really into like engineering and exploring how those things happen. Now, I didn't go on to become an engineer by any means, mm -hmm. but it was the ability to see from a large picture how these things weave together mm -hmm. that really, I think, helped me get where I was and, and find some success in academics. So that's how you um, explain your your journey towards big picture thinking. Why here at the end of 2021 do you feel your students need to have that same ability to see the big picture? Oh man, it's it's crucial. Um, heck, not just here at the end of 2020, but the end of every year. <laughs> I think of uh, at Chuck E. Cheese. When mm -hmm. you're at Chuck E. Cheese and you play that game where you throw a, co a token in the, in, in the machine and it falls down and it's supposed to push out a, bun you know, a, a puck and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And you just keep on feeding the thing tokens and kind of hoping for it to to push these things out. But when you but if you step back and you look at the pattern, uh, you can start finding, oh, what I need is timing. What I need is is strategy to make this game rewarding for myself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why it's important for these kids. They gotta be able to see the big picture so they can understand why their education is rewarding, why the lessons they're getting in their in their school and in their institutions are valuable. Mm. And so, you know, follow-up question to that and connected. You wrote, um, I deeply believe in culturally responsive pedagogy and the idea that knowing my students wholly will allow me to know how to teach them holistically. So Wes, how does culturally responsive pedagogy, especially in a math setting, but I'm, I'm thinking in any setting, help students gain big picture thinking and skill sets? 
Well, I think when people hear culturally responsive pedagogy, they start thinking, oh, I got to learn all about the race and ethnicity and nationality and of my students immediately before I can do anything. And they skip over a very important part, which is you have to actually analyze yourself as well. You actually have to you know, be able to look at and understand your own privileges, your own struggles, your, your heritage, your cultural um, practices. And the more you learn, um, the more you're able to analyze and, and objectively look at yourself, the easier it becomes for you to analyze and objectively look at your, your students. Mm -hmm. And then sharing that, and then sharing that is a, big, is a big deal too. The more I share with my students about my culture and my cultural values, the more they start to share with me. And it's a modeling thing, right? Mm -hmm. The more that I can make myself vulnerable, I, I, I'm teaching them, I'm modeling to them what it looks like to be vulnerable. And so hopefully they can do the same thing. And where along your personal timeline did, you know, a sort of refinement of this notion of the culturally responsive pedagogy really show up? I mean, was there a particular point or has it just kind of grown in you as as you've as you've grown? It was either during grad school when that became my focus for, with my education uh, masters, or it was earlier when I was in undergrad doing uh, doing theater. Uh, I was part of a, a multicultural theater arts troupe at UC Santa Cruz, uh, as well as a African-American theater arts troupe. Mm. And, you know, in these troops, you know, we really got to explore the stories of other cultures and, and see how they aligned with our own stories, how they were different from our stories, but just to s become familiar with them and, and, find the, and find the importance of them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Wow. That's, I just, I can't even imagine what my life would have been like, Wes, had I gotten involved in the theater. It's such a trip to think about it, you know? Oh, you would have been a masterful thespian. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, you know, when I was a kid and I was in, you know, middle school and in high school, you couldn't get me to speak if you, if you hit me with a stick, um, you know, and now here I am, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm a podcast host. It's pretty funny, but, <laughs> but, but you're right. You're right. I, I, I think that that may have been the case. And I think what I regret is that there may not have been a culturally responsive teacher who understood me and wanted to help me bring that out. I'm not sure that there was anybody who was really looking at me as a student or as a learner or as a person. Um, they were just looking at me as a vessel to fill up with information. Yeah, they were they were the sage on the stage, and you were there to yeah. to you know bow to them. Yeah. So again, a follow up to this: um, there is the big picture and some sense of it, more or less, and then there are skill sets, which is a different animal. Um, a previous guest on this show, Wes, his name is Kevin Matsunaga. He's a media teacher on the island of Kauai um, at Chiefess Kamakahele Middle School. He talked about three skills he wants all of his media students to have, um, communications, teamwork, and the skill of meeting deadlines. Um, and all through that interview, we just kept talking about these three skills and why they were important to him. So what are your three top learner skill sets more important than the rest on the list? You know, I, I think he hit the nail on the head when he said communication. It's hard to to shake and or disagree with that. Yeah. You know, you got to be able to explain yourself, especially in a class like my math class. You know, I don't care about answers. I care about how you get to the answers. Right. So communication is always essential. It will always be essential. But right be right along with it, I think would have to be, you know, a strong fortitude of resilience. Mm. You got to be resilient. So you have to learn how to fall on your face, get bruised up, bandage it up and get back in there. I don't think I'd be anywhere in life if I didn't learn how to be resilient. And I think finally, if it, uh, after communication and resilience, I would say the soft skills that, that really, really matter are listening. I know that sounds weird because communication, listening is part of communication, but we have two ears and one mouth. And a lot of times we forget that and we spend so much time just waiting to talk, waiting to respond back instead of really, really listening and absorbing what's being told to us. Mm. So maybe I'm cheating a little bit there by saying <laughs> listening and communication. Right. You know, I, I think, Wes, that a lot of people, um, even listeners to this podcast, might think of resilience as like a characteristic rather than a skill set. So 
And I, I don't agree with that. I agree with you. I agree that it is something that can be learned. But can you elaborate a little bit more on what that process is of the skill of resilience rather than just the human characteristic of resilience? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I would say resilience is basically sedulous minds and work. Mm, right. <laughs> to be resilient means to really embody, I think, that growth mindset, right? Being willing to fail, recognize where your failures and why your failures happen, and then push on, you know? And if you fail again, that's fine. You know, uh, Kobe Bryant, I remember once an interview with Kobe Bryant, I think it was an interview, it was a, it was a movie, a documentary he was doing. And he talked about how confident he was whenever he shot the ball. Mm. Every shot he put up, he believed was going in. No matter how wild it was, every single shot he thought was going in. And if that shot didn't go in, it was okay because the next shot went in. And if that shot didn't go in, perfectly fine, no problem, because the next shot's going in. And if that one doesn't go in, well, it's okay because guess what? I know the next shot is going in. Mm-hmm. And it's that sort of it's that sort of strength or belief, confidence that you need to have, I think, to be successful in life with whatever you're doing. Mm. And I, I want to reference something that was said by a previous guest in this third season, uh, Chad Miller, who works um, out of the University of Hawaii at Manoa's College of Ed- Education. He's also a, a philosophy for children expert. He talked about... Um, you know, that when you do something, in his case, he's a tall guy. So the first time that he dunked a basketball as a young guy, and he was astonished at the feeling that came yeah. with dunking a basketball, <laughs> right? And so what he elaborated on was that the it was the feeling that he wanted. Again, it wasn't necessarily just the mechanics of dunking a basketball. That is what it is. Uh, but it was that feeling. Um, and I wonder if if resilience also has that same quality to it, Wes. Like, you know, you, you, you work through a moment, you work through a failure, something that's really challenging to you, and you, you experience the feeling of resilience, and it's something you want to feel again. Absolutely. I mean, any teacher who has had to take a praxis exam or any sort of, t- <laughs> right. any teacher, you already know I'm going with this, any yes. teacher who has to take a praxis exam, they didn't pass that on one try. I would, I would bet, I would waver. Yeah. It takes a lot of studying. Do you know what I mean? And you fail and it's a miserable feeling, such a high stakes test. You know, we tell our students all the time, oh, don't worry. Life gives you retakes all the time. Don't worry. Like you just, just be prepared for the retake. And then we have it. You know, we face these situations in our own lives and, and we, we start to forget like, mm. you know, failure is part of the process, mm. you know, oh, 99 times try a hundred, you know? Right. Right. That's awesome. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. After this short break, we will continue our conversation with Wes Atkins. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the Entre Ed Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the Entre Ed Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Wes Adkins, who has degrees in digital media and film and culturally responsive teaching and learning. So, Wes, in this section, I want to talk about math, but before we do, I want to talk about autism, which has been an area of focus for you. So my question is, why? Des- describe the journey that led eventually to your work from 2016 to 2019 
in Riverside, California, as an autism spectrum behavior interventionist. I've always kind of had a, a, a soft spot for this community. Uh, my mother worked with inside of group homes with folks that were, had severe needs. Um, they were on the spectrum or, had, you know, you know, other challenges. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I, I think I learned to have a very big heart as a, as a young child, you know, just probably the best thing my mother taught me was just to have a, go- a heart of gold. So when I was, you know, grad- after I graduated, I did some substitute teaching and, and I, I didn't even know, to be honest with you, I gotta be frank. I didn't even know that that was a job. <laughs> I had mm-hmm. no idea about it. Uh, and then I ran to a guy who I told, I, I told him I had experience, you know, substituting and working after school programs and, you know, just working with the youth. And he just thought I'd be a great fit for it. And, and I loved it. You know, I fell into it and it was, it was beautiful. I got to a point in my life where I realized I'm going to have to either commit myself to maybe becoming uh, a full-on ABA therapist, or I was going to have to commit myself to getting back to school and getting teaching in the, in the classroom on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And I chose, I chose the latter. And that was just because I think I, I felt like I could reach more students. Mm. more you more of the youth right right and so i have a couple of follow-up questions to this you know when we say autism spectrum behavior interventionist any lay person you know looking at that set of words would think that somehow autism is a thing that you have to intervene and change behavior but that isn't it at all right not necessarily. Um, again, it's a spectrum, right? There's pe- there's 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 individuals who are are very high needs, uh, and there's individuals who are very low needs. Um, my experience, what I was doing was I was teaching life skills to mm. the individuals. You know, whether it be a high schooler who just needs to learn how to socialize a little more appropriately, or if it was a a young child who needed to learn to not bite themselves or not tantrum mm-hmm. to communicate, because Quite often, that's what was happening in the communities is there's a, a lack of functional communication skills. So you step in, I step in, I learn to teach functional communication skills quite often. Mm. Okay. And so, you know, just to back up a step, Wes, what, what does the lay public need to know about autism and individualized programs for learning? I think that one of the major things people need to realize is that autism it affects everybody. It has no prejudice, mm-hmm. autism. You know, it, it will hit any family, any community um, the same. And the other thing I think folks need to know is autism is not a, is not a sentence to an incomplete life. It's not sentencing mm-hmm. you to an incomplete life. Mm-hmm. Many, many people on the spectrum lead completely full lives. And, you know, it takes a community and it takes strong family, strong parents, strong community to, to help them get there and, and, and reach their full potential. Got it. And so, you know, last question about this. What what special and natural skills and habits and dispositions do kids on the autism spectrum bring to the general learner community? Well, one thing is organization, um, for sure. I, I've noticed that students um, and, and young and the youth that have autism, they they need organization. They crave organization. And when they're successful, it's because they keep themselves more organized than others. A lot of times I see in black and white and gray can be very, uh, gray can be very uncomfortable, very confusing for them. Mm-hmm. When it comes to mathematics, that's pretty nice because mathematics is very often in black and white. Right. Wow. That's just so interesting. I, I did not know that the skill of organization was part of that. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if, if individuals who are on the, on the spectrum, so to speak, were to get something like the Clifton Strengths Finder assessment or something like that that's you know strategic and organized is probably one of those things that would end up emerging you know near the top oh they they find a lot of comfort in it yeah yeah super interesting okay so we're going to shift directions here so wes i would bet my wallet that if we pulled all middle and high school kids math would end up dead last in popularity um i could be wrong (laughs) i could be wrong but i hated math in school and no teacher ever made it relevant to me so Let's say you're going to write a book, Wes, in 2022, and you're going to title it What Math Could Be. So lay out for our listeners what math could be, and I mean really could be. And let's see where this takes us. So like, 
what makes kids love math or at least really want to come to math class? Uh, well, I, I started laughing a little bit because you're right. You probably you probably would win your your whole wallet back. <laughs> <laughs> I take pride in the fact that countless students tell me I hate math. No disrespect, Mister. I hate math. I love your class, but I hate math. Yeah. <laughs> and I think um, you know what I've learned is that students just need to feel seen, and they need they need to feel like the subject is pertinent to them and their lives. You know, the subject has to feel real. You know, I was just teaching a second ago, I'm, I'm teaching students about the square root of negative nine. And, you know, they're wrapping their, their mind around this idea of an imaginary number, mm. you know? And so, I, you know, everyone's thinking it, but no one says it in class. And they're saying, and, they're, and I say it because I know everyone's thinking it. And what the thought is, is why are we learning about fake stuff? Why are we learning about imaginary things in this math class? And so I had to re, I just had to reel them back in and explain to them, listen, a lot of you here have, have said that you want to be engineers, you want to become electricians even. And this is the, con this is the principle of, of, of electricity, right? This, you know, understanding this imaginary, num these imaginary numbers, these will come up again when you become an electrician. Mm. And so if I had to write that book about what math could be, what math class could be, it would start off by being relevant. That's the very first thing. It has to be relevant to the students. And hopefully by the end of it, you know, it has to also just be exciting and, mm. and fun. Mm. So, um, you know, I know this may sound kind of goofy to ask you this, Wes, but, and, and maybe it puts you on the spot a little bit, like, but what would the major chapters in this book you're going to write, what math could be, um, what, what are the major chapters going to be? Like, is there a way that you could organize it for us, you know, even here in this moment? Maybe the I'd probably have a chapter uh, called "Embarrass Yourself," mm -hmm. uh, and it would be all about doing uh, math dances and, and you know doing dances to show you to remember the slopes. <laughs> wow, what what is a math dance that shows what slopes are? <laughs> so you know, you put your hands side to side like you're like you're guarding somebody in basketball, and you know that's our zero slope. And then you put and then you know you you you're pointing them up in uh, you know from from left to right you know, in a positive fo uh, fashion and that's your positive slope and mm. you point it down in the other way and it's a negative slope. And then you, you end with a nice, awesome, you know, cheer with both hands going straight up or one hand up, one hand down. Mm. And that is your undefined. And, wow. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I just, dan I danced these concepts out in class and, and then I ask everyone to enjoy and join in on me. Uh, everyone looks at me like I'm foolish. One of the, one kid does it, but at the end of the day, everyone remembers it. So, it's mm, okay. right, right. <laughs> you know, I, there was this moment, Wes, um, a few years ago, uh, when the author of the book, Ted Dentersmith, um, of the book "What School Could Be," was here in Hawaii, and I took him to Maui to see some schools on Maui, and we went to Pomaikaʻi Elementary, and what an astonishing experience that was because. Um, I think there were 800 kids, and it was a relatively new elementary school, but they were what's called an arts infusion school. Um, mm. And so one of the things that we observed, and, and I, I'm prompted to share this with you because of what you just described to me, um, was a, a a piece of theater that was put on by these fifth graders that explained the um, table of elements. And each oh. of the kids was a different element, and they had to um, work out, you know, the choreography of the elements and the relationships, and all of this had to be expressed in theatrical terms. And I just dropped my jaw in that moment. And so I, I wonder that what you're talking about is something that process is something kind of universal to reimagining education which is thinking outside of some sort of box. What is the box that you're thinking outside of? And where are you, where, where are you going when you do something like that with kids, you know, to learn about slope, dancing to learn slope? You know, I think what I'm doing is just talking to successful teachers, talking to teachers who are doing, the, doing things, you know, correct. I shouldn't say correctly, mm -hmm. but having success in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and not trying to mimic them, not trying to be a... a a mere copy of them, but trying to emulate some of the things they do that makes them successful. And, you know, it's like making food, like cooking. 
you know, you, you don't have to make the exact same dish as someone else mm. for it to be great, but it's nice to know how they made theirs great mm. to help you figure out where to start at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I love that analogy, you know, <laughs> uh, because my first career was as a chef and that was, that was you know, 40 years ago. And I just, I remember that that's exactly what it was like. You, you know, you weren't copying people exactly. You were inspired by what they were doing. And then exactly. you, and, and you were trying to be imaginative and creative and innovative in your own interpretation of whatever it was that you were trying to accomplish. That's super interesting. So, so kind of along the same lines, you shared with me a website titled Pixar in a Box. And I'm gonna read the uh, I'm gonna read the blurb at the top of the homepage. So quote, Pixar in a box is designed to help students answer an age-old question. Why do I need to learn this stuff? So <laughs> it goes on and says, our answer is found in a series of interactive lessons that demonstrate that the very same concepts that students learn in school are used to make movies of Pixar. So Wes, I went down this rabbit hole as well and watched a series of videos in which a film animator explained how math is used in animation. And I was like, what? Like, this was mind blowing to me. So I will provide this link in the show notes, but let's have you explain both the macro concept at work here and the micro math work being done, let's say by an animator, or it could be some other example that you choose. No, no, of course, of course. Um, yeah, Pixar in a Box. It, it was they did that in partnership with Khan Academy. So mm -hmm. it, it was it's, it's awesome. I, I I use a lesson that they made there uh, for transformations primarily. So you know the idea is how you know why do I need to know about transformations? I never am going to have to do transformations. And I tell these kids, you're doing them right now as you're ignoring me on your cell phone playing video games. You're doing a transformation, mm -hmm. moving this avatar around in a world. Mm. And no one's explained to you that that's, what you, that's what's happening right now. So now that I have your attention, let's go ahead and let's dive in and see what is, what is, let's get to the micro side, right? What is the math behind this concept? And then they start looking at how, um, you know, 3D modeling in a virtual space, uh, it, you know, takes place. And how while you're doing that 3D modeling, you're shifting and, and rescaling and, and, and resizing things and, and reorientating them. And these are all just different types of transformations along a, um, well, usually that's, that's actually happening on a X, Y, and Z three-dimensional plane. I, I'm, I'm only in geometry, so I try to scale it down for a second and get them to understand it on just an X and Y plane. Mm -hmm. I, I did an interview um, a couple of weeks ago with a um, math teacher at a middle school, a charter middle school here in Honolulu called Sikhs. Her name is Kara Chowdhury. And one of the things that we talked about was uh, something I think I recall now is called demos. Um, and where she led me with it, she teaches sixth grade math, um, where she led me was to a page that had artwork, but the artwork was broken down mathematically. And mm. again, my mind was blown. So I guess what I'm what I'm wondering is that you're working on something here. Uh, I just, I don't even know how to ask about it, but it's like, again, you're breaking out of a box in my mind because what you're doing is you're, you're saying to the kids, there's actually math behind the animation and they might not otherwise know that. And so you're opening a door for them. Am, am I on the right track? You are, you are. I mean, I spent today um, like I, I actually just did that lesson not too long ago. And then today I've been expanding on it. I didn't go back to Pixar in a box, but I said, I did go on. I, I think maybe she was talking about Desmos even. Oh, Desmos. Sorry. I missed, I missed both. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Desmos has a lot of great programs to help students, um, basically have these, like, you know, have software, it has software and it has modules and programs, programs that show you how things happen and you can manipulate them and, and it becomes a tangible you know, manipulative thing that you can do, which is nice. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I, I tangent a little bit. I'm sorry. I was teaching uh, tessellations today. Tessellations. Which and are? Before I, what, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> tessellations are, you know, when you look through a, a, a kaleidoscope, how everything is. is oh, right. How, how everything makes this beautiful pattern of symmetry. And, and what you're really seeing is just a bunch of different shapes. Uh, evenly uh, uh, dispersed all across this space. It fills up the whole space. There's no, the whole page, there's no breaks in it. 
Um, the, the best example I can tell you is if you go look at a mosque, most, uh, you know, most mosques will have this beautiful, uh, uh, tessellate, these beautiful tessellations and tiling on the floor. Mm. Um, it's very common in Spain. And hey, we're here in Hawaii. You see this all the time when you look at tattoos and Polynesian tattoos. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah. You see how they use these different triangles and different shapes um, and make patterns to fill up an entire space. Um, and really those shapes are just a tra uh, uh, translations, rotations, and reflections mm. um, all across that same, all across one plane. So you've already done something unimaginable, Wes, which is you've taken a guy who hated math, and I'm now excited about math. I, I just, <laughs> like, the more you talk, the more I'm like, wow, tattoos, it never occurred to me. Uh, I'm Now I'm going to be watching and looking at people's tattoos and wondering what the mathematics involved in it is. Um, so, but I was only going to ask this question if time permits, which it does. So here goes. What is, Wes, the 60-second explanation of, quote, the gamification of learning math? Oh, man. The gamification of learning math is uh, trying to turn your math class into the greatest uh, bubble pop game that was <laughs> that ever existed. Um, you know, it's so it's interesting, right? We often will get sucked into these different games we have on our phones and play them for countless hours or time, hopefully not hours, just countless amounts of time. And, and, and we don't think very much of it. And that's the sort of thing I want my students to do when it comes to math. I want you to, you know, practice something over and over and over again mm. until you really, really have a strategy or you really understand the concept of how to be successful when, when, when given uh, this problem. And, and Manga High has been really good for me when it comes to that. Manga High has really, really helped me, you know, gamify my classroom and my, and my subject. Mm -hmm. And yet the first chapter of your book, What Math Could Be, goes back to the relevance thing, right? So while you're doing that work, you are insisting that the relevance of math has to be front and center as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we live in a modern world where... You know, most most of these students will grow up and have to work with technology in some way or form. Mm -hmm. So why not introduce them to that now? And why not make them comfortable with that now? Mm, that's awesome. So Wes, before we go to our second break, I want to talk about ethnomathematics. This was another term I had no idea about before I started preparing for our interview today. So I don't want to lose our listeners here. So let's have you do two things. Number one, what is ethnomathematics? Ethnomathematics is the study of mathematics through the lens of ethnicity and culture. Okay. And so what is the most revealing story you can tell that illustrates what happens when math uh, transmogrifies, and that's a Calvin and Hobbes term, um, into ethnomathematics? I think the best example would be the unit circle. So in a regular math class, um, they're trying to explain to you how the unit circle works in these different quadrants and how the, there's these unique points created by a segment that is just one unit long. And it becomes a very long, daunting task for many students. And again, they don't see the relevance of this sort of lesson. Mm -hmm. For me, what I've done is I've looked into ethnomathematics a bit. I'm not a master by any means, but I'm just, I gravitate towards it. It gives me a lot of energy. I looked into ethnomathematics and, the, you know, I, I got a great way. I discovered a great way to teach the unit circle that was far more relevant to the students. Mm -hmm. So before I start teaching the unit circle and all these different points, I now introduce the students to the Hawaiian, uh, uh, Hawaiian compass. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was Nainoa Thomas who made it, or, Thompson. or, or I know Nainoa Thompson. Thompson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, who um, I don't know if he made it or he re he kind of reinvent brought it back or, or reimagined yep. it for Hawaii. Um, and so these students, you know, they they really gravitate towards this. I showed them how you know you could break up uh, a circle into uh, thirty two. I think it is thirty two houses. Mm -hmm. you know, every house is eleven point seven five or eleven point two five degrees but, but who cares about the degrees for a second they're just a house right now right and then and then we have these beautiful conversations about the names of the different houses how this house is called Ina why is that house called Ina oh that's the the region in the house that you would travel in to get to the land mm -hmm. and then oh why is why is this house named you know 
I forget the name of this right now, but why is this house named something that means empty? Well, that's because that space is empty and there's not much there ever. Mm-hmm. And we got this beautiful conversation going in our classroom about the relevance of a compass. And after that conversation, we were able to then step further and uh, take a step further and say, okay, well, how does this relate to a unit circle? Mm-hmm. And it, it just took flight. I think this lesson is one of my best, one of my favorite lessons I ever teach. Ethnomathematics changed my life when I, when I was able to bring that into class. Does ethnomathematics almost um, by definition, uh, maybe I don't want to use the word require, but it's the one, it's the word that's in my mind right now. It sort of, sort of demands that mathematics comes outside of the classroom setting. And yes. Okay. Can you explain yes, that a little bit? Ex- yeah. So, so for too long, I think, um, you know, we learn about Pascal's triangle and we learn about all these, you know, European Anglo, Anglo contributions to mathematics. And we don't think about uh, all the mathematical successes that came from all cultures, you know, all, all, the, all the accomplishments that came from a, a, a myriad of cultures. And so at the mathematics, I think is beautiful because it, it says, no, no, no. Many, many a cultures, especially Polynesian culture, has contributed to mathematics, mm. and you know, in intangible ways. And when we when we can re we can evaluate that and, and bring that back into the classroom, um, we make class and the the subject relevant again. Mm, yeah, that's so interesting. And you know, Wes, before we go to break, I'll just share a quick story with you that. I was teaching European history to 10th graders at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls here in Honolulu. And this was quite a long time ago. And it was really the first moment that the so-called blog showed up, you know, the thre- <laughs> the threaded conversation that you could have online. Yeah. Um, and I remember when we were in the unit on the Enlightenment and I had created this blog space where the kids could have these lengthy discussions that went on long, long after class had ended each day. Um, I remember putting up a prompt, which was um, the quadratic equation is proof of the existence of God. And that's all I said. And then I walked away from it to see what would happen. Um, And eventually I got called in by admin and read the riot act because the kids were not doing their math homework. They were talking about the existence of God in the quadratic equation. Um, And so, you know, I, I tell that story just because, you know, it's back to your chapter on relevance. Just somehow or other, you have to you have to make that connection. Whether it's history or chemistry or math or whatever it is, relevance seems to be front and center, right? Well, it's the okie doke. I call it right. You you get them talking. You get them talking and minds moving and you know bought in to 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 something. Yeah. And then and then you 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 know while they're being while they're bought into this one thing on your le- in your left hand. You know, you you open your right hand, and here's the lesson yeah. that's based on stand. That's a standards based learning task. <laughs> yeah, you know, but but yeah, exactly. You know, but it's the relevance from that we start off with that gets them to mm. buy into the to the other hand. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to explain it. Um, so, hey everyone, stay with us. We will be back in a moment with more from Wes Atkins. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hey everyone, this is the What's Cool Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Wes Adkins, the winner of a $25,000 Innovation in Education Award from Farmers Hawaii and a math and STEM teacher at the James Campbell High School on Oahu. So Wes, last night, which was November 30th, 2021 at 6.30 p.m., something pretty cool happened at Dreamhouse Eva Beach which is a public charter school in in Eva Beach on Oahu. So what happened last night and how did the genesis of what happened last night take place at something called the Teach for America Hawaii Innovation Lab? Uh, Well, last night, everyone realized it truly, uh, it's a wonderful life. Um, (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Perfect. 
Perfect. Uh, that's what we watched. Last night we, we screened the film, the old film, It's a Wonderful Life, um, for a few folks who were visiting the Big Island. Uh, it was one of, uh, God, we've got a few shows now that my students have put on. Um, yeah, we, we won this beautiful grant um, for $25,000. And we used those funds to buy the biggest screen on Oahu and to get a transmitter and all the bells and whistles we needed to start our own community-based movie theater. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea has been in me for a very long time. I've always wanted to own my own movie theater and I've always want, I've always been interested in exhibition, film exhibitions. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to Hawaii, I, I came here with Teach for America and I was advised to always push myself outside my comfort zone. So even though I was incredibly busy my first year teaching and getting my life settled down, uh, I still took advantage of this thing called the iLab, the innovation lab that Teach for America offered. Mm-hmm. And this small idea, this small idea, like, well, well, maybe what if I had like a theater where students could learn like everything? They could just learn about like, you know, uh, it'd be an interdisciplinary studies sort of opportunity for students to see how art and, and economics or, or business and, and, and everything kind of collides and comes together. Because I'm, I'm one of these, you know, quacks and nuts who thinks that movies can teach you everything in life and mm-hmm. that everything you know, that everything valuable starts with cinema. And, and so the iLab was, was nice enough for me to just go, you know, go bananas uh, uh, with this idea and, and incubate it. And I really poured a lot into this idea and this, and, and this, uh, this, this dream. And at the end of the day, I was able to get the funding I needed to, to do that. I, I never would have imagined ever winning a grant, uh, even applying for a grant. Um, before I spoke with my coach, uh, Ms. Debbie Ng, uh, in the iLab. And then getting all the support from everybody in that iLab was, was priceless, really. Mm. So I didn't realize, as I was doing my prep, that, in fact, the work in the iLab preceded the award. Um, that you, yeah, were, you were yeah. working on the idea and refining it and building it and designing it. Um, and then came the opportunity to af- apply for the award? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And if you can recall for us, like, what was that application process like? Like, what, what, what did you perceive that farmers and public schools of Hawaii Foundation were kind of looking for? Was, was innovation defined or were you free to divide, define it for yourself? Well, it was um, also kind of aligned to the A-plus challenge that was going on at that time. So Mm. my project, I started to really see how can this theater be an example of building sustainable communities. And so we started, so that's kind of, you know, where, where, where it started or, or kind of what gave it some legs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of what gave it some legs. It was, I wasn't expected to apply for this grant uh, as part of being part of the iLab. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to make sure that this was more than just a PD class for you or something like that. It was something I could, you know, get something tangible out of. It was a class I got something very tangible out of. Right, right. And, and I was lucky enough to have a coach in that class who understood that, understood, you know, my genuine passion for providing this opportunity for students and sharing a love, sharing a love. I, I genuinely love cinema, right? I tell people all the time, you know, theater uh, and cinema saved my life. Mm. And, and if, I can, if I can share that with someone else, then I'm a happy camper. So, Wes, side tangent question. I wasn't expecting to ask this, but all right. Desert Island, Wes Adkins, and one DVD that you can bring with you that's going to be with you for the rest of your time there. Oh, one film. You know, I, oh, <laughs> it's rough. That's so rough. I'm sorry. I'm going to say Casablanca. Wow. I'm, really? I'm going to say Casablanca. Yeah. I'm wow. a sucker. I'm a sucker for Rick's. Wow. Uh, there's something about Humphrey Bogart, the inventor of cool. Yeah. Um, you know, Louis Armstrong, you know, the, the, one of the greatest musicians of all time. Yeah. Uh, uh, a story about resilience, right? A story about uh, uh, uh-huh. triumph over evil. It's everything. It has everything you need. And the idea that you can watch this movie from what is it, now 70, 80 years old. Yeah. Uh, and it feels, it, in, for me personally, it feels like it was made yesterday. Yeah, that's what an awesome choice. I team taught U.S. history with a friend, Russell Motter. I actually did an episode with him a couple of weeks ago, um, and we showed that film every single year that we taught together, and I really got to know it. 
Um, and what was really surprising, but maybe it shouldn't have been, is that the kids loved that film. They, they, that was one day when they just absolutely rushed into class. You know, it was the continuation. It has everything. It has everything. It has love. It has shootouts. It has, <laughs> it does. you know, it has jokes, music, everything. Everything yes. you need. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so in a Hawaii public radio interview last March that featured you and one of my previous podcast guests, Matthew Williams, Matthew talked about how the pandemic has shown that our students can learn both anywhere, anytime, and can truly own their own learning. So in what specific ways, Wes, does your drive-in theater project prove Matthew's point? In other words, your project was born in a pandemic, although I understand now that it was alive in you for a very long time, but it will live and grow as this pandemic recedes. May the gods make that so. So talk about <laughs> talk about the journey and the specific ways kids learn anywhere and everywhere and own their learning. You know, I'm so proud of how much my students take ownership in this theater. You know, just hearing their, just overhearing them having conversations when they don't think I'm listening. Um, you know, trying to recount how long they've put time into this, how many, you know, when their first meeting was, and just really seeing the growth that they've come to in, with this theater. I think that's the number one thing for me when it comes to owning your education. A lot of times, you know, it's not easy to see how you've grown from pre-algebra all the way up to algebra two. Because, you know, sometimes you're just, you just, it feels like these kids are just learning it for the week. They need it for a quiz or test. Yeah. And then, it's, then it pours right out their head. But with this theater, you know, these students, they, they track, they track their progress. Mm. You know, they're, they're exhibiting this growth mindset without even thinking about it, without even mentioning it to them. You know, you know, they're, they're applying uh, skills that they, you know, they're applying skills uh, uh, to this theater that feel like, you know, uh, real life, uh, they feel tangible, they feel real to them all the time. Mm. Um, you know, finding ways to market their, their theater, finding ways to uh, spread, you know, the word to build up audiences, building a menu to figure out how they can, you know, maximize their profits at the snack shack. And, mm -hmm. you know, and also just collaborating, you know, keeping everyone on board and, and, and working co uh, collaboratively with all their peers. Mm. You know, who are also, you know, co-owners in this in this theater. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been th I've been thinking a lot about teacher efficacy, and the, you're you're making me think about student efficacy. That we spend a lot of time, it seems, in education trying to convince the kids that somehow it's important to do what they're you know what they're supposed to be doing, oh, whether it's algebra, constantly. right, and chemistry. Um, but in this case, what you're doing is you're, you're working towards efficacy by actually putting them into experiences where the outcome of those experiences is literally evidence to them that they are doing things. They're making things happen as a result of that. Does that, does that strike you as? Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I, I remember a moment on one of our first shows and the, the kids it's the young, the young, the young adults, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're there. I can see them scrambling and, and kind of failing in the snack shack. Yeah. And I sat for a second. I thought to myself, Oh, I should go help them. And then immediately I said, no, 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 no. This is what learning looks like. This is what learning looks like. Let's see what happens in the wake of this failure. And as soon as the show was over, I, I stepped back in my classroom and they're already discussing ways to improve their operation, ways to be more efficient, to be more calculated in, in their tasks. And, you know, a piece of me cried inside because <laughs> mm, yeah. that's what I was trying to create. I was trying to create a space where learning feels real, where learning feels relevant and where they really feel like they are, you know, they have a stake in the community. They're stakeholders in their community. Yeah, that's a, that's a marvelous thought, Wes. I, I did an interview with um, Edna Hussey, who's the principal um, at Mid-Pacific Institute's elementary school. And she talked about, you know, as she does her hiring, that she's looking for the astuteness that um, you can observe when a teacher knows when to step back. And um, that astuteness, which is such a marvelous kind of, it's like resilience. It's almost hard to kind of pin down. Um, but that's what you're talking about there. You saw this moment where you could have stepped in and made made it right. And instead you step back and let it happen. 
Um, and that is where efficacy is born, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you take the road least traveled, and it makes all the difference. Absolutely. So, Wes, I want to close this conversation by asking you about an idea uh, that's being talked about a lot lately. You know, we've gone from, uh, you know, soft skills to essential skills, and now we're talking about something called durable skills. Um, I'm going to quote uh, from a report we both read. Um, and here's that quote. Um, it's, sorry, it's a little bit long, but it's it's worth it. Um, in an era when technical skills are evolving at an unprecedented pace, there is an important set of durable soft skills that last the lifetime and power entire careers. Durable skills are a combination of how you use what you know, skills like critical thinking, communication, collaboration, and creativity, as well as character skills like fortitude, growth mindset, and leadership. And I guess I would add in resiliency there as well. So regardless of an individual's pathway, educational attainment level, or geography, durable skills are in high demand by employers." End quote. So my final question, Wes, is this, and it, and it brings us back to the word sedulous. Um, you are clearly tireless in your work, looking around the corner into the future to figure out how you can prepare your young learners um, for what the world could be. So what are your wonders about the future for them? What what are your worries? What are, what are you doing personally and professionally to prepare yourself for what's around the bend? I think one, one of my major wonders are, are students going to value the education, so the subjects we give them in the future? Mm. Are they going to value them? You know, so many, so often students think that, you know, Things don't matter because you can Google them. You, know, you, you shouldn't spend so much time trying to remember the quadratic formula because you can just Google it. And more than just Google the quadratic formula, you can just Google the, the answer to the question you're being asked. You know? And so you know, the, the value of knowing the quadratic formula is, is plummeting. And so my worry becomes, you know, will they value the, um, the base core of, of a lot of things that we're learning? And, and at the end of the day, you know, there's things you can't Google. You know, you can't Google experience. You know, you can't Google uh, fortitude. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you're good. You know, so so going into the future, um, I guess my hope and my wonder is just: will we continue to put value in the things that can't be Googled? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what are you doing, Wes, personally and professionally to prepare yourself for what's around the bend, which by definition, you can't really know because it's around the bend. Yeah, I think for me, uh, what I'm doing is I, I just try to stay on my toes, you know, like, like Bruce Lee said, be like water, be formless, mm. um, be, you know, be willing to, 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 to be malleable. <laughs> I remember the summer before I came to teach here in Hawaii, uh, teachers were telling me all about uh, you know, wild things they've been through in teaching, like uh, like strikes and that la- lasted forever, and and blackouts and things like that. And you know, we were saying, "Oh man, nothing like that could ever happen again." Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then maybe six months into my first year teaching, bam! You know, here comes the pandemic. Yeah. So it's like, how do you prepare someone like that? How do you prepare a first year teacher to go teach online? You know, after after spending all his t- all their time uh, learning how to, to think outside the box in person or, or you know, mm-hmm. be creative and intangibly in a class. It's really hard. It was, it was really hard. But, you know, I just remind myself that you got to meet students where they're at. So you, as long as you can recognize where they're at in any lesson you're, 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 you're dishing out, whether it be in your subject or in life, whatever the lesson is you're trying to give to them, meet them where they're at. Don't talk over them. You know, don't talk above them. You know, really recognize them as a, as a as a young human being, and you know, give them not necessarily guidance, but just give them your experience. And hopefully, they won't have to, you know, relive some of the bad things you had to do. Yeah, yeah, that's that's wonderful, Wes. I I really thank you for this conversation today. I, I hope you and your family stay safe. I hope that you um, sedulously 
continue <laughs> to stay on your toes and to meet your kids where they're at um, as you go forward as an educator. Thank you for being an educator here in Hawaii. Um, and I look forward to staying in touch with you as you continue forward with your many projects. Josh, thank you for having me. And in the beautiful words of Rick, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful relationship. That's awesome. I agree. Thank you, Wes. <laughs> Take care. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the other major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is funded by Education Change Agent Ted Dentersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be virtual community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at mltsinhawaii and at Josh Rapoon. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline, stay safe and please get vaccinated. Most of all, bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care. <laughs>